We will be turning our attention this morning to Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your copy of the Word with you, I ask that you consider taking it up and following along with me. The message this morning will come from verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5. But in order that we might glean just a little more of the context, I'll begin reading this morning at verse 1. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is is circumcised, that he is a debtor to to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for Your Holy Word, Your holy and errant Word. As we come now to the preaching of Your Word, we ask with sincere hearts that You would be most pleased to grant the power of Your Holy Spirit to be upon both the preaching and the hearing of Your Word. Though the text before us will be familiar to many, we pray that it may be seen and heard with freshness and new application. Where the text is less familiar or even new, we pray that Your Word would go forth with both clarity and understanding and become a source of encouragement to all who hear. We ask that You lead us now with humble hearts before Your Word of truth, for we come in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we continue working our way through Galatians this morning, and it brings us to chapter 5, verse 7. And just to orient you a little bit and set some expectations, I'm going to begin with a rather long illustration, a historical illustration. So bear with me, if you will, and follow along because I believe it is applicable and will help us to understand Paul's words here. Some of you, fewer and fewer it seems, may remember 1980. March 21, 1980, President Jimmy Carter announced that the United States would boycott the Olympic Games scheduled to take place in Moscow that summer. The announcement came after the Soviet Union failed to comply with the president's February 20th deadline 
to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. In the fallout of this Olympic boycott, the hopes of many athletes around the world were either dashed or delayed. Among these was a young middle distance runner named Mary Decker. Although no doubt disappointed, she, she was at the peak of her athletic ability and would, would later grow on to win gold medals in the 1500 meters and the 3000 meters at the 1983 World Championships. And she was the world record holder in the mile, in the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. Over the course of her career, she set 17 official and unofficial world records, including being the first woman in history to break 4 minutes and 20 seconds in the mile. She set 36 U.S. national records at distances ranging from 800 meters to 10,000 meters and has held the U.S. record in the mile 2,000 meters and 3,000 meters. She would have been a contender for Olympic gold in 1980, but her hopes had been deferred. Fast forward to 1984. The Summer Olympics are held that year in Los Angeles, California. For those of you who are old enough to remember, there was a particular event that year that occurred during those games that garnered a lot of media attention. That same year, growing unrest in South Africa, an increased public awareness of the political system of apartheid captured many of the news headlines. The Olympics had become for a long time a politicized event, and 1984 was no exception. Earlier in 1984, at the age of 17, Zola Budd from South Africa achieved fame when she broke the women's 5,000-meter world record. But since her performance took place in South Africa, which had been banned from international athletics competition, because of the apartheid policy, the International Amateur Athletics Federation refused to ratify Bud's time as an official world record. But seizing the opportunity shortly after this, the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, seized this opportunity and persuaded Bud's grandfather to encourage her to apply for British citizenship since her grandfather was English. So the Daily Mail rallies the, the country and, and, and Zola Budd quickly obtains a British citizenship so that she could compete in the 1984 Olympics. Given the, the heated political atmosphere, the anti-apartheid demonstrators were present wherever Zola appeared as a British citizen, including the 1984 Olympics. And so these two runners, this young Zola Bud from South Africa and Mary Decker, met in the 3,000-meter finals in the 1984 Olympics. Mary Decker, of course, was heavily favored to win the gold medal. And as the race began, Decker quickly moved to the front of the pack where she was accustomed to running. And that's also where she was most comfortable. For the first three laps, everything went according to plan. 
But at the third lap, the barefoot South African Zola Bud was running just behind to the outside of Decker, and then she made her move and pushed ahead and took the lead. Shortly after that move, Decker collided with Bud, and she fell rather spectacularly to the curb, injuring her hip. As a result, Mary Decker did not finish the race. There was no gold medal for Mary Decker. And at the press conference following the event, Decker said that Bud was to blame for the collision. Controversy ensued. The story filled the headlines and made the evening news for quite some time. Does anybody remember this event as well as I do? It was just everywhere. With regards to running competition so that we can kind of frame this situation, it is generally the training, trailing athlete's responsibility to avoid the runner ahead. They have that responsibility. But there's also an accepted convention among distance runners that the leader must be a full stride ahead before cutting back in ahead of that runner. And this is the picture that Paul brings us to in Galatians verse 7. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? The word translated hinder here is derived from the Greek word inkopto, which means to cut into, to impede one's course by cutting off his way, to hinder. This term was often used in the ancient Greek games. Races were not held back then on oval tracks as they are today, but rather to the post and back. There were rules against tripping, of course, but sometimes it was possible to get away with a fair amount of interference, especially near the post, where runners had to change direction. One unsporting strategy for winning was to impede the progress of, opponent, of opponents by cutting in on them. So I think most of us are familiar that sports language is spoken by many people across the world. And it was certainly familiar to the Roman citizens in the first century. Athletes were iconic figures of the ancient world. They were heroes of the young boys and the craze of the culture. And drawing on this popularity, New Testament writers chose to convey many important aspects of the Christian life through athletic metaphors. They used sporting events to depict important truths related to our sanctification. The Apostle Paul used illustrations taken from the world of athletics, did he not? In his letters, he mentioned ancient games such as boxing, wrestling, and especially track and field. Paul often spoke of the Christian life as a foot race, a race he himself was determined to finish. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And toward the end of his ministry, with great satisfaction, he writes to Timothy, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, 
the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. The Christian life may be compared to a race, but it is not a sprint. It is more like a marathon than a hundred yard dash. And the longer the race, the more opportunity there is for things to go wrong. Speaking metaphorically, some runners pull up with injuries. Others stumble and get knocked off their stride. Still others get dehydrated and collapse before they ever reach the finish line. Paul had experienced similar difficulties himself. If you recall back in Galatians 2, verse 2, he mentioned a time when he feared that his race was over. Some Christians had started adding law to the gospel, and so he labored all the more diligently, lest by any means he should run or had run in vain. Now the, apostles had, the apostle had the same fear for these dear Galatians. They had started well. As soon as they received the good news of the cross and the empty tomb, they were off and running in the Christian life. You may even think of that famous scene from Chariots of Fire where Eric Little, the, the great Scottish athlete and missionary, says, when I run, I feel His pleasure. The Galatians had known the pleasure of running free in Christ. From the moment the gun sounded, they had been running hard. But then, just as suddenly they were in danger of being disqualified, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? As the Galatians were running the race and following the course of the gospel that Paul had delivered to them, someone cut in on them. They had gotten knocked off course and were in danger of falling out of the running. But the Galatians were not just going for gold. They were running for eternal life. The text says that they were being hindered from obeying the truth. What Paul meant by the truth was the truth. What he had previously called the truth of the gospel. Back in chapter 2. The truth is the good news of salvation from sin and death through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth was the pure gospel, unadulterated by any works of man, lest any man should boast. But notice here that this truth is a truth to be obeyed. There really is such a thing as gospel obedience. Running a good race in the Christian life means something more than simply knowing the truth. It means actually living and practicing it. And don't get me wrong on this point. As far as our standing before God is concerned, all we need to do is believe on Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet, once we have been justified... The Holy Spirit continues a work in us, this sanctifying work. And we, we are called to walk in the truth. When we stumble, when our weakness comes upon us, and we yield to the flesh, and we fail to put the old man to death, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and we are to repent and get back on 
the gospel course. When it comes to living for Christ, we must obey the truth. We must obey gospel truth and stay on the course. What we believe and how we behave cannot be separated. There is an unbreakable bond between theological integrity and spiritual vitality. As John Stott says, our creed is expressed in our conduct and our conduct is derived from our creed. Let me say that again. Our creed is expressed in our conduct and our conduct is derived from our creed. Our creed, what we believe. Christianity is not simply something we know. It is something we believe and something we do. It is not merely a belief system or a moral code. It is a theology that comes to life and is expressed in all of life. Gospel obedience is walking according to what God has revealed in His Word. And this is something we must cling tightly to and rightly to. God's Word is truth. It is not a pointer to the truth. It is not the truth if I let it be the truth for me. It isn't a portal to the truth or one of many truths. It's not as we so often hear these days, my truth or your truth, as if truth were some subjective goo found within the individual that varies with the changing mood of the person or under the influence of the philosophy of the age. No. God's Word is truth. It is a truth we are called to obey. It is a truth we are called to walk faithfully in. We are a people who proclaim and speak much of God's providence. And this we do because He has revealed this truth in His Word. We should know, therefore, and be able to embrace with our whole hearts passages such as Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. But this is far more than a comforting verse we turn to in difficult times. It is a revelation of God's good providence and providential care for all of His creation, particularly for His people. Why? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to obey His truth, which means we are to obey His providence. We don't just hold to the doctrine of God's providence as some abstract teaching. It must be a doctrine that is a truth taught from His Word such that it invades our souls and informs and sustains us as we run well through all of the troubles, through all of the hardships, through all of the trials in this life, trusting God throughout and obeying His providence in such a way that we are able to say, Lord, while I don't understand this situation in my life, I know it is Your good providence for me. Obeying God's providence is but one way. We obey the truth and live in gospel obedience. 
And as we take a moment here to do a little bit of a spiritual inventory of our gospel obedience and looking at do we obey God's providence, making sure that we don't embrace the subjective goo of relative truth, there is a sneaky cousin to relative truth that Christians, particularly tender and earnest Christians, can easily fall prey to. And this is usually framed and undergirded by something we call sincerity. Hang in there with me for a moment. One of the great challenges we face in the Christian community is confronting someone who is sincere in what they believe, but they are sincerely wrong. Their absolute belief in the rightness of what they're doing or thinking is based upon their sincerity. And it makes it difficult to speak the plain truth of God's Word into their lives so that it will change their mind and heart and thus make the much-needed course correction. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who play the sincerity card? I don't need to see a show of hands, but I expect many of you have or at least have heard this declaration. Don't be taken in. God's standard is truth, not sincerity. It is the easily misled Christian that points to his sincerity rather than God's Word. To leverage the illustration from this past Wednesday evening, no matter how sincerely a good Christian lady believes and feels she is called to ministry to pastor the flock of God as an elder in His church, her sincerity does not agree with the truth of God's Word, and she is therefore sincerely wrong, and she needs to make a course correction, both in her mind and in her heart, in order that she may be found running well in gospel obedience. And for an even more bewildering example, the man who sincerely believes that in order to be true to his inner self, He must mutilate his body and present himself as a woman has changed the truth of God into a lie and has worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. And he has followed through, and as he follows through with his sincere convictions, he is being given over to his own vile affections. Though the popular culture around us has deviated far from the course, and is running down a path toward the edge of a cliff like a herd of mindless lemmings, we are not a people without hope. We are not a people whose confidence is shaken, for if we were, it would reveal that our confidence has been misplaced. Even that delusional man I just described who's living according to his sincerely wrong beliefs and tries in vain to make himself into a woman, that man is not beyond the redemption of Christ. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. 
It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. We must persevere in gospel obedience. We must share the good news with that man. We must share the good news with those who have begun to give in to the message of the age. We must persevere in gospel obedience and not simply give assent to the truth. It is not enough to say, I go to a Bible-believing church. You must believe and, and give yourself over to the entire gospel life that God has called you to. And remember that obedience to truth is obedience to God's Word. This is what has been at the heart of the special Wednesday night Bible study. This is what has been preached and taught by Pastor Lovett's recent messages in Matthew 18 regarding how we are to deal with a brother who has sinned. If we follow the wisdom of the world or follow our sincere beliefs in the matter of a sinning brother, we get off course. We get tripped up. And we have allowed worldly thinking to cut in on us. And we are no longer obeying the truth. It is a path that leads to broken trust. It is a path that leads to broken relationships, broken fellowship, and a divided people. But Christ is not divided. And there, neither therefore should we be divided. Therefore, we must obey the truth. In God's overwhelming goodness, He helps us in this life of gospel obedience. He does not leave us alone. He understands far better than we do our own weaknesses. And so our most gracious Lord gives us His means of grace. Means whereby our gospel obedience is refined as we exercise ourselves in them. And the means of His abundant grace are those outward and ordinary means in which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption and all that that He has ordained. But especially in His Word, in the sacraments, and in prayer. All of which are made effectual by the Holy Spirit unto the elect for salvation. While we in this age, in this church, in this particular culture may not find ourselves under the influence of Judaizers and their gospel-corrupting teachings, we are nonetheless under a continual assault of false teachings, vain philosophies, and worldly wisdom. This continual assault has affected every person here, without exception, at least in some subtle ways. Do you believe that? Do you have any sense of that? I think it is so subtle that we can fool ourselves to think that we don't and are not being affected by this assault. Our tender hearts, as our tender Christian hearts, are given to corrupting how we understand and interpret and enact the loving compassion of Christ. We are quick to think that we fully understand the motives of our brother when really, we have created a false narrative in our minds and in our hearts that maligns our brother. We're given to formulating airtight, logical, presuppositionally founded argumentations 
that soon leak, like some of my garden hoses, when exposed to the pressure of the truth of Scripture. As we consider our weaknesses, we must conclude then that we need to exercise ourselves in the means of grace. We need to wash off the worldly wisdom with the water of the Word and renew our minds. We need to come before our Heavenly Father and worship Him in spirit and truth. We need to come prepared to hear and receive and apply the truth of His Word to our lives. We need to come broken over our sins and eager for repentance. We need to come joyful and filled with the anticipation of knowing that God is pleased to meet with His people and that He will indeed comfort and bless them. We need to go before the presence of God in prayer, in earnest prayer, with praise and thanksgiving, with broken and contrite hearts, petitioning, pleading, and truly desiring the work of the Spirit in our lives. As we desire to be found running well in obedience to the truth, it is right and it is good that we heed what Paul writes to the Galatians next in verses 8 and 9. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Said another way, this influence that you are experiencing This conviction about the Christian life that is beginning to form in the sincerity of your hearts, it is not from the Lord. It is not according to the truth. And by the way, even a little bit of worldly wisdom mixed with God's truth is corrupting. And so a little works righteousness mixed with the gospel makes it no gospel at all. I'm guessing that most of you know that even a small amount of yeast is sufficient to leaven a large loaf of bread. In using this illustration, Paul knew that his audience would also understand the picture. But perhaps it even carried with it additional, richer understanding for the hearers of his letter. We must remember that there was a vitally important story in history of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as the Jews commemorated this feast, the Israelites were commanded to remove all leaven from their houses and eat no bread that contained leaven. This activity involved purging and cleansing the whole house of any leaven. It was a big ordeal. Additionally, as we think about leaven in the Scriptures, the law forbade grain offerings with leaven. In fact, no yeast was allowed to be burned on the altar of of any sacrifice. The grain offering for Aaron and his sons, the priest, was was also to not contain leaven and was to be eaten in a holy place. Leaven is symbolic and instructive. It is a reminder of Israel's utter dependence on God for their deliverance. To have escaped their homes contrary to God's command with leavened bread would have been disobedience. It would have been sin. Leaven is like sin. As we sin and fail to repent, sin doesn't remain in an isolated corner of our lives. It grows and begins to fill more and more of our lives. When a Christian sinned and doesn't repent and carries that sin with him every day, 
he is living a life of disobedience before God and denying his deliverance from the bondage of sin. He is denying his deliverance from the bondage of the Egyptians, so to speak. As Paul was giving instruction to the Corinthian church, you recall, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, regarding the man in the church who was guilty of sexual immorality, he instructed them to remove the man from their fellowship because, like leaven, his influence would permeate the whole church. Jesus compared the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to leaven and warned his disciples against being taken in by their teachings. Jesus indicated that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Having a show of piety without true holiness is like leaven and then it gradually increases and spreads corruption, puffing up a person with vanity. Paul was then using this illustration to drive home the fact that the teaching of the Judaizers was no small matter. It needed to be dealt with completely and purged from their understanding of the gospel, lest the object of their faith prove to be other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What they believed mattered. Doctrine has implications. Little ideas can have significant consequences. And what are some of the possible consequences of believing that we need to add even a little of our own righteousness, a little of our own righteous works to what Christ has accomplished in order that we might be saved? One consequence, guilt. If you are relying on your righteousness for your salvation, even in part, and you are honest in your assessment of your sin, you will necessarily carry a weight of guilt. No one, absolutely no one save the Lord Jesus Himself can live a life free from sin. In fact, we can't live a day free from sin. And I strongly suspect it may be impossible to even draw a breath without sinning before we exhale if we fully knew the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Another consequence, frustrated piety. And by this I mean that if we are trying to accumulate sufficient righteousness in ourselves in order to be saved, we will be frustrated in our pious works. We will always have to do more and more and still more. The mountain called piety is insurmountable and so we will necessarily be frustrated in finding that we can't be righteous enough to become right with God. We are racked with guilt. And also knowing that we cannot perform enough pious acts to earn our salvation, we then see the most dire and significant consequence of the leavenous teaching of the Judaizer. And that is eternal damnation and suffering the just wrath of a holy God. This is a consequence with eternal significance. This is why I need Jesus with no Keith works mixed in. This is why I need grace. This is why we need a faith that doesn't spring from the tenderness of our hearts or the keenness of our minds. It must be the gift of God, for He is a jealous God. 
the work of our salvation, and the glory that results is all His. So now in verse 10, Paul writes, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whoever he be. Paul expresses his confidence in the Galatians, that the Galatians will take heed to his exhortations and return to the path of the true gospel and finish running well in obedience to truth. And his confidence is in the Lord. Paul had an unwavering confidence in the truth of the gospel that he was delivering to the Galatians. It was a truth that had been delivered to him in the Lord. A truth that he had taught in the Lord. And a truth that would be received by those who were in the Lord. Though he had some fears and doubts about them as evidenced by his bold and urgent exhortations, yet he had confidence that through the blessing of God upon what he had written, they might be brought to be of the same mind with him and to own for themselves and abide in that same truth. As we look to Paul's example here, he teaches us that we too ought to hope for the best of those for whom we have caused to fear the worst. We are an optimistic people. We believe the promises of God. But, Paul has an altogether different response for the false teacher or teachers in their midst. He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. God will most certainly judge those who preach a false gospel. And next, almost as if it occurs to him in mid-stream of consciousness, he writes, And I, brethren, if I preach circ yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer? If I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. A little awkward, kind of catches you off guard, but I think we can follow the logic of Paul in this verse along these lines. One, you know, the Galatians, you know that the slander and persecution that I bear from these Judaizing Pharisees is because I preach there is no need to be circumcised. Two, therefore, if I were a proponent of circumcision, they would have no cause to persecute me. And three, I preach Jesus and Him crucified. I teach that the circumcision was fulfilled in the cross. It is this teaching that is a grave offense to these people. If I preached otherwise, that offense would not exist. Now, you come to a passage like this and you realize that there have been so, so many excellent messages preached, so many sermons preached on the offense of the cross. But for the purpose of this message, I am content to leave the explanation of Paul's words here. But for those who may still struggle a little bit with the phrase, offense of the cross, I will share briefly this opening from one of Spurgeon's sermons by that title. The religion of Jesus is the most peaceful, mild, and benevolent religion which was ever promulgated. 
when we compare it with any set of dogmas invented by men, there is not one of them that can stand the least comparison with it for gentleness, mildness, and love. As for the religion of Muhammad, it is the religion of a vulture. But the religion of Jesus is that of a dove. All is mercy, all is mild. It is, like its founder, an embodiment of pure benevolence, grace, and truth. And yet, strange to say, gentle as the gospel is, and inoffensive as its professors have always proved themselves to be when they have acted rightly, not resisting evil, but submitting to it whatever it might be, yet there has never been anything which has caused more disturbance in the world than the Christian religion. It is not a sword, and yet it has brought war into the world. It is not a fire, and yet it has consumed many old institutions and has burned much more than men thought would last forever. It is the gospel of peace, and yet it has parted the dearest of friends and caused direst feuds and confusions everywhere. And that brings us back to our final verse, verse 12. And this verse provides a closing bracket, as it were, that I believe is to be prepared with an opening bracket from verse 7. So let's put them together. You were running well. Who cut in on you so that you should not obey the truth? I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Cut in and cut off. It is as if Paul is saying, these false teachers who are teaching circumcision have cut in on your walk in the liberty of Christ. Given the error of this teaching, they would be better off taking the matter to the extreme and completely emasculating themselves. These are hard words. Hard words intended to land with efficacious force upon the readers and hearers of Paul's letter. To the Gentile, these words were a large exclamation point to his teaching of justification through faith alone. No circumcision needed. To the Judaizer, these words would have been a clear hearkening back to the Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 23 that was read earlier. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. When Paul told the troublemaking Judaizers to emasculate themselves, he was saying with the most graphic illustration that they should be cut off from the church. While Paul is certainly employing some religious sarcasm, at the same time, he is dramatically restating the consequences of embracing a false gospel. Such blunt language might seem over the top for certain ears, but sometimes it is pastorally necessary to awaken people from their sin and do slumber. We certainly need more pastors who preach and teach with the courage, the zeal, and the clarity of the Apostle Paul. For how then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, our prayer ought to be, may the Lord be pleased to send us more pastors like Paul 
to give us pastors according to God's own heart, which shall feed us with knowledge and understanding so that the people of God may stay the course, obey the truth, and finish running well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. As we hear the foolishness of worldly philosophies being daily propounded, as we see so many people embracing these ideas and acting upon them, our hearts are broken over the sin in these lives. And yet, we are truly thankful that You are unchanging, that You have revealed the truth to us in Your Word, and then by placing our confidence in the Lord and walking in gospel obedience, that You will in no wise cast us out, but You will preserve and protect us. That we might say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. May it be so, Lord. Keep us from falling into folly. Save us from trusting in the sincerity of our own hearts. Make us to love and live in the truth of the pure gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this we pray in His name. Amen.